Today's reading is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. It's a short one, but kind of thick, so let's hear the word of the Lord. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a previously ratified covenant by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, if I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to actually begin by inviting you uh, to imagine. I want you to imagine that your life is shaped, that your life is shaped by rules. Now, for some of you, that's not going to be too far flung for you to imagine. Now, but for others, and, and I want to be very clear, not just any rules, the rules, the law of God from God. And you're meticulous, okay? Imagine this. You're meticulous. And I don't mean just the Ten Commandments like we confessed earlier before. Instead, I'm talking about you find your groove in the additional 603 laws that are there in the Hebrew Scriptures. You go to temple because it's law. You stay away from anything that looks like bacon because it's law. How much do you work? There's a law for that. How many steps do you take on a particular day of the week? There's a law for that. You make sure and watch what clothing you have on doesn't have certain blended fabrics. Who's in and who's out? No mystery. Just look at the law. Circumcision? Of course. We don't cut corners, right? So when it comes to... There it is. <laughs> Listen, you, you live and breathe, <laughs> I can't help it, you live and breathe the law. Gray feels like the devil's playground, but black and white, oh, that's a glimpse into heaven. And you feel like you're in step with God whenever you're in step with the law. And really, adherence to the law is your only saving hope because when you look around your world, you feel what Moses called the curse of the law everywhere you look. Moses had told you and the, the broader Israelite community that if they ignored this law, both individually and corporately, their lives would fall apart. And when you look in your history, you'd see that your ancestors had experienced exile. And when you looked around present day, what do you feel but occupation and oppression by one of the greatest powerhouses in history, the Roman Empire. Conditions are to be met if God is to meet with you again. And the conditions are spelled out in the law. But I don't want you to get me wrong here. The law, the law is life. The law is one of the greatest revelations that God has given to mankind. Law was a gift entrusted to Israel at its inception. And yet simultaneously, the curse that comes from disobeying that law is felt across Israel. So what is the only way back to life to its fullest, the life that everyone longs for, but you guessed it, more law? 
And so according to you, when you think about God, you see God waiting for all of Israel to get their act back together. And the law is the roadmap back to God's heart. As a first century Jewish person, as a first century Jewish person, this is your story. This is the story of your people. This is, as you would often describe it, your history. But there's something missing in a world of just rules. What if you'd forgotten a crucial component of the story? What if there was like this missing piece that if you actually reinserted it into the story, it would change the whole of history? That actually if you reinserted this missing piece, it would change the way you read your scriptures. It would change the way you see every part of your life. Now, I know every, whenever I'm talking with my daughter, she's four years old, Ava, whenever I ask her a question about the Bible, she, her, her kind of go-to first response answer to any question about the Bible is what is often called the Sunday school answer. It is Jesus. Very good. But here's what I want to say this morning. I know I'm a pastor. I know we've got the Bible open. I know we're gathered together in a church. But what you need to understand is that to, this morning's missing piece, the answer is and is not Jesus. This is so easy to miss, such that you can even claim to be a follower of Jesus and miss the robust claims of the gospel. And, and there are reasons we do that. I mean, we're, many of us are bad historians, right? And we're going to be digging into history. We could find ourselves living lives like Kanye West, who says we're too busy making history to read it. You know, some of you, that may be your story. I get it. But this morning, we're going to dig into God's history and we're going to continue our journey through a little letter called the letter of Galatians to the Galatian church in the first century. And Paul's going to reveal to us that missing piece that if we understand it actually makes our understanding of history more robust, our understanding of the whole of what God is doing throughout history and so putting our Bibles together appropriately. And then it even transforms how we see our lives today. So please turn with me in your Bibles if you haven't already to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to spend some time starting around verse 15. And where does Paul, when he, when he wants to anchor the central claim of history, where does Paul go? Does he go to Exodus, where, where God gives and entrusts the Ten Commandments? Does he go to Leviticus, where the Levitical priesthood and all of its sacrificial system is detailed? Out? No, Paul doesn't go there. So where does Paul go? Paul, when he's orienting us to the center of history, he wants us to know that the center of history is a promise. And this shapes the tone of the very trajectory of all of history. You see, before, before there was a law, before there were the Ten Commandments, before there even was an Israel, God made a promise to Abraham. And he makes this promise in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And he makes and reiterates this promise again and again and again. And what we see, if you look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it's one of these reiterations of the promise that God is making to Abraham. God says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, I want to pause right there. And I want us to just sit in the fact that God had purposed in history, before all of this plan began to unfold, purposed to bless, in other words, you know, to bless the world. When I'm praying with my daughter, more and more I realize 
that I use words I don't even know what they mean. You know, like when you're sitting there at the dinner table, you're like, God bless this food. What on earth does that mean? What we find, what the word bless means is to make whole and happy. It actually has an element of fullness, of sustenance. So what God is wanting to do and what God has purposed at the very beginning of his plan is to make the world whole and happy. That's what he's promised. And also, who are all these nations? Critically, as we're reading through the book of Galatians, in the first century, whenever anybody thought of nations, and you were part of the nation of Israel, every other nation was considered a Gentile. Every other person who was a part of any other nation other than Israel was a Gentile. So it's not hard to look then at Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, and read, In your offspring shall all the Gentiles be made whole and happy. This is a robust claim. But the question lingers, who are the offspring? Is this exclusively speaking of Israel? Is this exclusively speaking of Israel actually blessing all of the Gentiles by revealing to them the law so that they become ultimately Jewish because that is the most fullest way to live? No. And now we begin to step into what Paul is arguing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Look with me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now somebody asked me in first service, sometimes I see Paul say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. What's the deal with that? Does he have interchangeable names? No, Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. Um, Christ is Greek Christos for the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning anointed one, the promised one. So who is the offspring? It's the promised one, Jesus. And what we have to understand is that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, at the very beginning, God had Jesus in mind. Not offsprings, but offspring. He was knowing and naming Jesus back there in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. 18. And this isn't Paul kind of making his own argument, okay? The whole host and the unification of Scripture's witness is pointing to this. If you go to the Gospel account of Matthew, chapter 1 is one that we often skip in our devotional lives because you've got these long list of names and this genealogy. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like, what is going on there? What Matthew was wanting to highlight, and this is so crucial, he connects this genealogy from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And this is what he wants to make a claim. This is what all of the New Testament is pointing to in its unity with what the Old Testament, that Genesis through Malachi and the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, the whole host of Scripture is unified in pointing to this one claim that Christianity is not a first century phenomenon or just a 21st century fad. This is what God has been doing throughout all of history. This is what he's been orchestrating everything towards. His history is is pointed to and centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in his faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, he has fulfilled all the demands in his life of the law. He lived absolutely blameless, innocent, perfect. Showed us what it meant to live the way we're designed to live. And then died and fulfilled the demands of the curse on the law. But not just everything revolves around the law. 
Jesus also faithfully is the fulfillment of the promise all the way back to Abraham. And that's what we see detailed out here in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, through faith. Four hundred and thirty years before the law, four hundred and thirty years before God brought Israel out of Egypt, four hundred and thirty years before manna fell from heaven, God made a promise, and nothing can ever overturn that promise. And this is why this is so crucial. When we think of the center of history, it's not even just that the center of history is a promise. What is so amazing is that the center of history is God's unbreakable promise. Nothing can subvert it. The law cannot subvert it, nor does the law somehow renegotiate the claims of that promise. We see this here. Paul's making that claim there in verse 15. If a, you make a contract with someone, if you just make another contract, does that therefore nullify the first one? Of course not, and especially not with God. And a big component of this is to understand how law and promise at their core are mutually exclusive. A promise, a promise is based solely upon my word and zero based upon what you do in response. If I promise to do something, it's based upon what I have said I will do. To receive a promise is to trust it that you will do what you do and actually orient your life around the fact that someone's going to follow through on what they said they were going to do. For example, if someone called you and they said, hey, you won the lottery, all you have to do is come down and pick it up. Um, the way you do not receive that promise is to laugh it off, hang up the phone and think that's ridiculous. This is a scam, right? To receive the promise means you would trust what they said and you receive it. You go down and you receive it. You actually believe what they say. Now, law is different. Promise is unconditional. Law is very conditional. Law says if you do this, you get a reward. If you don't do this, you get punishment. It's based very much on how you respond rather than the character and the capacity of the person who made the promise. Do you see the difference? Law is based upon and has ramifications for how you respond to it. Promise has nothing to do with what you do. All you have to do is receive it. And so when God makes this unbelievable, unbreakable promise, the very foundation in which he makes this promise is on the surest foundation that the whole universe has, and that is based upon himself. He makes the promise based upon himself. We see this in Genesis chapter 15, where God and Abraham have a bit of what's called a covenant ceremony. Now, it was common in the ancient Near East that you would do this kind of ceremony to communicate, I promise to you this, and if I don't, these things will happen, okay? And what they would do is they'd take two unlucky animals or more, <laughs> and they would cut the animal in half, and you'd put half of the animal carcass on the left side, drizzle some blood, you know, for color, and then you'd put the other half of the animal carcass on the right side. You would make your promises... And then you would walk through each of you through the blood. And on the other side, you would say, if I do not uphold my promise, may I be like these animals. 
Now, what's so fascinating in Genesis 15, understanding this custom, understanding this broader covenant ceremony, when God does have Abraham do all this work, cut these animals in half, place them on the right and the left, but when God, or Abraham is waiting on God, God has Abraham fall asleep under a tree. And Abraham slowly wakes up out of this slumber. And what does he see? But he sees God go through the blood of the covenant alone. And what God is saying in that moment is that my promise is based solely upon my character and my capacity. No amount of disobedience, Abraham, is going to keep me from blessing the world, from bringing about wholeness and fullness to this world over. No amount of injustice, no amount of brokenness, nothing can stop me from doing what I promised I would do. All they'll have to do is receive it. The very essence of a promise versus law. Why then the law? <laughs> this is where Paul gets to the point. Like, well, what? Some of you may be thinking, well, why then the law? That's verse 19. Or you jump down to verse 21. And the apostle Paul writes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Is there a law that actually gives life? No. Even when we were confessing earlier, what did the law do? The Ten Commandments. It revealed our brokenness. It did not make us right. Where suddenly we were broken and now we feel whole because we heard these commands that we've disobeyed. No, there is no law that makes us right. It evidences what is right. I've heard this great illustration that the law is a lot like an x-ray. It reveals rather than heals what is broken. And when the law is held up to our heart, it shows just how broken, how marred and sinful we are. The Apostle Paul in verse, the second half of verse 19 says, the law was added because of transgressions. Now, if you walk through the history of Israel, you actually get a great picture of this little microcosm of the human predicament. And the heart of the problem of humanity is a problem of the heart. Now remember, right after God delivers Israel out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai. They've seen all of these amazing things. God parting the Red Sea, drowning the whole Egyptian army, actually leading them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they come to the end of Mount Sinai with this amazing theophany, this picture of God coming down on the mountain to bring them the Ten Commandments. And what do they do? They carve a golden calf and completely ignore everything that just happened and worship that in place of God. So what's the response when you read through the Torah, the way, the law? You see that God then gives more laws. Then there's more rebellion to those laws, and then there's more laws, and then there's more rebellion, and then there's more laws. Over and over this cycle goes about. And if history, the law, or as Paul says, the law is our guardian teaching us. What is it teaching us about the human condition? It's teaching us that we're not good people who make mistakes. We are broken people with broken hearts imprisoned under sin such that no law can ever fix our brokenness. Alexander Solzhenitsyn brilliantly said, who went through the gulag, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. 
And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? What our hearts need are not more laws, not more rules, not more judgment. What our hearts need most is for someone to come and heal them and to make them new. And that's what God has promised to do in Jesus. But why go through all of this? Like why, why make a promise 4,000 years roughly ago to some guy in North Africa? Why orchestrate all of history to bring about his promise to fruition? To at least two reasons. And here's the first one that we see, we'll see in our text. First, God purposed to spotlight the only way to wholeness, the only way to healing. He purposed to spotlight it. Look with me at verses 23 and verse 24 of Galatians chapter 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was like a tutor, a guardian who taught us to see that the world is utterly dark when God is absent. When we choose to now create a community in a world that does not honor the rightful creator, we're like a child who's learning the language to call the darkness night, and we ache for the sunrise, and then finally, as we see in the text, it's revealed like a sunrise after an Alaskan winter night, and we ache, and we bask, and it warms our hearts, and finally, the, all, of, all of that we thought was true, that God was doing, he's finally fulfilling his promise in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and in Christ, the law's demands are fulfilled. The curse has been taken care of and even the promise of Abraham and all the blessings that God longs to bestow upon humanity have come to fruition in one man in history, his only son, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the second point as to why God would orchestrate all of history for this. And here it is. The second reason is that God purposed to remove every barrier for everyone. The law no longer defines. And those old dividing lines have gone by the wayside. And everyone who now embraces Jesus is made privy, is made an heir to the riches of God's inheritance. Look with me here at verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as we're baptized, think of the word immersed, okay? You've now been placed in Christ, totally subsumed in Christ, and have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And listen to this. this is so important. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. No matter who you are, if you embrace Jesus, regardless of your background, all the promises made to Abraham, you hear a resounding yes, even to you. You know, the Christian faith comes with a unique and exclusive claim within all of history that both celebrates genuine diversity, but also giving untold unity. You see, in Christianity, you don't have to go from being a Jew to being a Gentile. You don't have to go from being a Gentile to being a Jew. You don't have to go from being white to be black or black to white. Instead, in Christ, we find unity in this one family that is neither first or second class citizen, but just family. 
And it's a diverse family that screams to the world the brilliance of our creator. God has purposed. God has purposed to remove every barrier for everyone such that all you have to do is to receive this promise. And that's why the central claim of history is not God making demands on us. No, the central claim of history, the center of history is God's unbreakable promise to us. There is no longer a them. There's just us in Christ. That is a groundbreaking, democratizing, liberating, beautiful invitation that God longs to lavish good upon us. And listen, you could go to one verse in the Bible, you could look at one story in the Bible, but there's nothing that portrays God's brilliant character like like looking at the whole storyline of Scripture and seeing generation after generation, failure after failure. God remained faithful because He is good and He is zealous for our eternal good today. That's the kind of God He is that we see when we look at an appropriate full-orbed picture of history. That's how promise works. That's how grace works. But the question I have for each of us this morning is, is that how you see history? Is that how you see your story? Is that how you see God working in your family, in your loved ones, in your friends, in your colleagues? Because listen, I think, I don't think the greatest struggle in, in our lives as human beings is somehow ensuring that good, thing hap- good things happen or ensuring that bad things won't happen. Because listen, it doesn't take you long to realize there's just a lot you can't control. Instead, one of the greatest struggles is how we interpret the good things that come into our lives, how we interpret the bad things that we can't control that come into our lives. And listen, how you see God working in history is how you will see God working in your life. The two are so interconnected. So I want you to pause and think about this. Do you see your life through promise or law? Do you see your life as, as, as God being this cosmic cop who's just ready for you to drive one mile per hour over the speed limit before he brings the smack down and punishment? Or is God a loving father who has made robust promises to his children and will not stop and goes generation after generation to ensure that his good will comes to fruition for the world? How do you see your life? How do you see history? You know, we all have those days um, where it feels like your tires are just spinning. And sometimes those days turn into weeks. Sometimes those weeks turn into seasons. Um, And sometimes it feels like your wheels aren't just spinning, but life has kind of mowed you down. Um, This past Monday was, I mean, transparently, was one of those days for me. There were a couple reasons for that. But one was very personal with my family. Um, Some of you know that Allie and I are expecting uh, a child. She's 15 weeks pregnant. And some of you didn't. I just saw the wow uh, face. Um, And I came here. I was here at the office around 4 o'clock. And I got this call from my wife. And she's just bawling. 
and some of you, some of you know our history, uh, at Allie's really high risk. Um, we lost our first kid um, through some complications kind of later in the game. Um, and we have to go through a lot of measures to ensure that this, as best we can, from our human side of things, uh, to ensure that this baby comes to fruition, you know, as close to full term as possible. Well, Allie called and she said, you know, the doctors told me that after she had a surgery the week before, I got an infection from the surgery. And this infection, uh, if it's not uh, ejected or whatever, getting gotten rid of, it causes preterm labor. And she's just bawling over the phone. I'm bawling. Um, so I, by God's grace, had the margin to drive home. And we just held each other. And while I'm driving home, um, and, the, and listen, we're taking antibiotics. We're doing everything we can. I asked her if I could share this story. She's teaching upstairs, uh, the kiddos. Um, and she said it was fine. Um, we're doing everything you can. It's not like a really high chance or a really low chance. It's just this weird in between. And even if you get rid of it now, it can, chances are really good it'll come back later in the pregnancy. So it's just made a high risk situation even higher. And the moment I get into my car to go home, you know what? You know the questions start running through my mind? God, what did I do wrong? How did I mess things up? Like, are you mad at me or something? And I so quickly, without even realizing it, began to interpret my life through law. And I had to preach the good news of the gospel to myself again and say, no, 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 no. That's not. In Jesus, that's not how you work. In Jesus, all my punishment has been taken care of on the cross. And now I am an heir according to the promise. And I have to tell myself that God has and will keep his promises to me in Jesus. And I have to own that because that's what God has promised us, that all of the richness and his robustness and his longing to pursue our good, God isn't doing this to somehow tear me down or to find me in a vulnerable position and rip me apart. He's not vindictive. No, he's a good father that wants to bring about the good fruit of his promises in each of our lives. And I, listen, I had every right to be angry, but I had no right to be angry at God in that moment. Because once again, in understanding who I am because of Jesus, I'm an heir. And I can be angry at the brokenness in the world, but I'm an heir that, and listen, I know that this promise doesn't mean that I'm reserved or safe from pain. And I, I don't even like saying this out loud, but even that my child will make it, I don't know. I hold on to God's care and his provision, but that doesn't mean we're safe from really brokenhearted, broken realities in the world. But one thing I do know is that I'm an heir not only to what God has done on the cross, but that when Christ returns, every heartache, every tear that I've wept, God will wipe from our eyes and he will finally eradicate everything evil from his world. And those who are in Jesus will bask in the fullness of the riches of his promises that were made to Abraham that have been fulfilled in Christ and will one day be brought to completion in the wind of the, at the end of this world. I hold on to that because the way that God has worked in history is an affirmation of how he will continue to work in our lives. And the Christians in first century Galatia, as they're receiving this letter, they'd known about Jesus and what God had done in him, but they did not understand the robust nature of the promises of God made available to them in Christ. 
that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, rich or poor, whether you're black, white, whether you wrestle with same-sex attraction, or you don't even fit into any categories that we have in our culture, God says if you embrace and receive the promise I've made in and through Jesus, your family and my promises are yours. And so the challenge I have for myself and the challenge I have for us this week is that whenever, whatever comes into your life, whether it's a, a project that fails at work and you feel like a failure, whether it's that promotion you got passed over on or your kids just aren't listening to you anymore, or too, too autobiographical still, or, uh, you know, you go on another blind date and it fizzles and your heart aches for someone someone to be called someone and you to be there someone or maybe it's a good thing that comes in life where you do get a promotion or your work comes with great significance and catalyst for change in the city whatever it is whenever that comes remember this this is what we hear in the history of God's witness in scripture is that God has and will keep his promises to me in Jesus not just me but us you God will keep, has, and will keep his promises to me and Jesus. Hold on to that. Don't let it go. Because that is what the witness of Scripture and history is proclaiming and is yours in Jesus. And when you really get that, it's like being born again into a whole new world. Born again out of a world of just rules and now into a world of promise. And that changes everything. It changes the way you read your Bible when you're going through and you come across a difficult passage, remembering behind whatever's happening, even in the narrative of Scripture, that God is one who's working throughout history to keep His promises to bless the world. You're going to finally see what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. When you're looking at your life, you're going to see and feel and understand to a greater degree that God really isn't against us, but He's for us and He's removing every barrier that separates us. And that in the midst of it all, you can stand steady and firm, not even on just one particular passage in the Bible, but who God is and his goodness and his character and his capacity to deliver on his promises. Do you want to live in a world of promise? You don't have to work for it. It's already being made and has been made in Jesus. And because it's a promise, all you have to do is receive it. Will you receive it? Will you live in light of it? Will you trust him? I know I want to. Let's pray. God, I more often than not live my life in light of law rather than promise. But that's not the center of history. That's not how you're working in the world. You've invited us into this robust family in Jesus that is both diverse and unified and a liberating grace. Help us, God, to live in light of that, to really trust your promise in our lives to just proclaim the goodness of a world of promise, even in the midst of so much brokenness. We love you, God. In Jesus' name.